millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I am Glenn Longwell of the Glenn and Dean Show podcast, and I am currently filling in for David of the History of England podcast with a supplemental episode about the fabled English outlaw, an epic tale, Robin Hood. I have, for as long as I can remember, been a fan of Robin Hood, dating back to when I was a child and I had the Walt Disney animated movie with him depicted as a fox. Since then, I have also watched numerous big screen adaptations, ranging from Errol Flynn to Russell Crowe. From Mel Brooks's Men in Tights to Kevin Costner's The Prince of Thieves, I have seen every depiction. I have also studied and written numerous academic papers on the subject. And today I am going to share with you what to me makes it such a grand story. I will share how the story has grown and changed, much like King Arthur, and how every retelling has left their own mark on this age-old tale. Firstly, let us start with the beginning. Many people have argued that the story of Robin Hood is based on a real English outlaw or a series thereof. Well, here's some facts for you. In 1216, a man named Robin Hood, spelled H-O-O-D-E, a servant of Sister Abbey, was accused of murder and fled. In 1225, the sheriff seized the property of Robert Hode, spelled H-O-D-E, a Yorkshire outlaw. He appears in the ledgers of Yorkshire, Robert Hode, that is, about nine times between 1226 to 1234. Six of these times it is Robert Hod, spelled H-O-D. Once it is Robert Hood, spelled H-O-O-D, in 1229. Twice is Hobhod, spelled H-O-B-B-E-H-O-D, both in 1227 and in 1228. Twice, St. Peter is inserted in the margins with a cross next to his name. This is in 1227 and again in 1234. This is likely because he owed money to the church, whether it be in rent or in tithes. No one can say for sure. In the year 1225, the same sheriff that seized the goods of a Robert Hode was also asked to pursue a notorious outlaw known as Robert of Weatherby. The fugitive was eventually brought to justice and hanged in chains. Was Robert Weatherby the fugitive that was eventually brought to justice? Was Robert Weatherby Robin Hood? No one can say for certain. But as Robin and Robert were interchangeable at this time, it does stand to reason. The name Robin Hood also possibly appears in the Chronicle of England in 1263 
when a follower of Simon de Montfort by the name Robert Godbird, who was an outlaw that resided in Sherwood Forest, was involved in the resurrection against Henry III. In 1460, a monkish hand describes an outlaw by the name Robin Hood living in Sherwood Forest that commits innumerable robberies. Andrew Winton puts him in Inglewood Forest and then in Barnsdale. And the list goes on and on depending on how deep one wishes to dig and how broad of strokes one wishes to paint with. I personally am not sure that Robin Hood was based on a real outlaw. I think it more likely that outlaws tried to base their careers on Robin Hood after the fact. And I think that the disenfranchised like to make anti-establishment people into heroes. For further proof of this, look into the 1920s and 30s America, where people such as John Dellinger and Pretty Boy Floyd were made into American icons and are still revered to this day. What can be stated with certainty, however is that the early tellings Robin is a sturdy yeoman, which explains his skills with a war bow or a long bow, as the weapon takes a lifetime to master, and most nobility did not bother with it. It was seen as beneath them. His enemies were the sheriffs, the aristocracy, oppressing landlords, and some of the clergy. Basically, anyone who would take money or rents from hard-working lower classes. Even knights and squires were safe from his robberies, because they were thought to be hard-working men being commanded by the aristocracy. The songs and tales of Robin Hood were likely being sang in knights' camps and pubs across England and were so well known that a monk was reported to have said that he could not recite his Paternostra, but he could do Robin Hood and Sherid Wastrode, which is one of the many rhymes about the outlaw. By the late 13th century, he had already come to represent a hope of freedom and rebelliousness for the English. Robin Hood has such a muddled past that debating whether he is based on a real outlaw or a series of them is frankly pointless, because there are so many other fascinating bits to the legend and the history of the legend that I would like to discuss. In modern retellings, he is often depicted as a supporter of King Richard I, or Richard the Lionhearted. Robin is often described as a crusader who has made it home to a land that is suffering from the misrule of Prince John. While Richard was spending some of his nine years and two months away from England fighting his wars. In the Russell Crowe version of the story, where he spent two hours trying to narrow down exactly where his accent is meant to be from, Robin makes it home after the king is killed in France, and what is actually a relatively historically accurate version of the king's fate. However, some of the surviving texts, such as a jest of Robin Hood, the king is listed as Edward. Since there were three kings named Edward right in a row, that is less than helpful. However, history does give us reason to think that it may be Edward II, as he was most like King John in the category of being a huge failure and an overall loser. But also, because he was the only of the Edwardian kings to tour all of England during his reign. And in the text, they have Robin disguising himself and meeting the king, where they, to steal a phrase from the Australian legal dramedy rake, get on like a house on fire. The first known reference to a poem of Robin Hood is the alliteration of Piers Plowman, one of the highest regarded bits of English literature dated around 1370. However, most surviving poems of the hero date from around the late 15th to the early 16th century. We can safely surmise that neither Piers Plowman nor the 15th and 16th century are the first versions of the story, though. This is because the archetypes are already clearly defined. His hatred for the sheriff of Nottinghamshire and or Yorkshire, his skill in archery, and his regard for women, just to name a few. 
It also stands to reason that if Plowman were the first to write some of these stories down in the late 14th century, which he almost certainly was not, then they must have already been quite popular. So who knows when the oral tradition of Robin began. Some scholars, in fact, believe that much like King Arthur, Robin's popularity, or a character like Robin, did all the way back to an invasion of the island of Britain. For Robin, it would be from William the Conqueror's invading of England. Billy's brutality is well documented, especially in the north. Anglo-Saxon loyalists would have been forced to live the life of a wolf's head for at least a little while. That is, of course, if they did not bend the knee to their new Norman overlords. This is speculation, but I believe it would be remiss if I did not mention it, and I would be even more irresponsible to disregard it out of hand. While I am personally a fan of the yeoman Robin Hood, such as Rusty Crowe's depiction, and a handful of modern authors that have decided to remain true to history, many of you, I'm sure, think of him as Robin of Loxley, and an earl or some other level there of the nobility, such as the Jonas Armstrong version in the BBC Robin Hood series. This version of the story also has its roots in broad strokes history, as well as in the story's retellings. In a couple influential plays, Anthony Munday, the famous playwright from around the 16th and 17th century, wrote The Downfall of Robert, Earl of Huntington, as well as The Death of Robert, the Earl of Huntington. In these works, Robin is actually Robert Fitzooth, the Earl of Huntington, the first known depiction of him being a noble class. One does not have to dig very hard to realize that Robert Fitzooth was never actually the Earl of Huntington. That honor goes to David of Scotland and then his son John. However, and this is where the broad strokes bit comes into play, there is an alleged rival claimant to the title of Earl, coming from the family of the Lords of Kyme, of whom there is Robert Fitzooth that lived from about 1160 to 1247. A rather long life for a man living in the rugged forests of northern England, one would think. Both of the plays were written and published between 1597 and 1601, and they have been victim to more criticism than praise. Some go so far as to liken it to the quality of Richard II or other of Shakespeare's later work, which, if you were not aware, is also generally not held in high esteem. There are also a huge amount of continuity errors some of which I will bring up later in this episode. Now, I could go on for hours about the individual songs and stories of Robin and what each of them mean in a geopolitical sense, or at least what I think they do. I could spend just as long commenting on how in some stories Robin is clever as a fox and is able to beat the sheriff because the yeoman class is so much smarter than the aristocracy, or how in others both the sheriff and Robin are blundering morons. In these versions, the only saving grace for Robin is that he is friends with the local woman who does all of his thinking for him, and the only person that happens to be dumber than him is the Sheriff of Nottingham. But I won't do that either. What I intend to do with the rest of my time is focus on some of his merry men and other recurring roles that are also in the retellings. Much like Arthur needs Guinevere and Merlin, Robin needs his merry men and his famous two enemies. Guy of Gisborne and the Sheriff of Nottinghamshire. Firstly, it should be said that while Robin Hood is a famed outlaw to us, when Robin was a young lad, or at least according to the story, Robin Hood and the Monk, the famed outlaw of his day was one Adam Bell. And since there is virtually nothing surviving about Adam Bell, it is hard to say how much of Robin's myth was later adopted from the stories of Adam Bell. And likewise, if Adam Bell was adopted from an even older story about another outlaw, 
No one can say any of this for certain. But in the story, Little John tells Robin that he shoots an arrow as well as Adam Bell, and this is meant to be high praise for his archery skills. Nowadays, though, when Adam Bell is mentioned, he is typically the chief protagonist that Robin must deal with. He generally has to beat Adam Bell in order to prove his merit as the leader of the gang or Lord of Sherwood or Inglewood Forest. Inglewood is typically where Adam Bell is meant to reside, and that is also why Andrew Winton most likely put Robin in Inglewood and then later in Barnsdale. Now, the Merry Men of Robin are every bit as vital to the legend as Robin Hood is himself. Originally, there are only three listed followers, Little John, Much the Miller's Son, and Will Scarlet. We will begin with everyone's favorite, Little John, or John Little. A little John is always depicted as being ironically named, as he is meant to be a veritable giant amongst his peers, sometimes being described as a seven-foot-tall warrior. In more recent tellings, he is depicted as using a quarterstaff as his primary weapon for close combat, in addition to his war bow for long combat. Little John is also referred to as John Naylor, or some kind of spelling thereof, and is allegedly buried in the cemetery outside of Derbyshire, and a plot owned by the Naylor family. He appears all the way back to the oldest versions of the story. He is most often first seen as someone blocking a bridge and challenging Robin to a duel with quarterstaffs in order to allow passage. John is always, however, the second in command of the Merry Men after the duel. Sometimes he is already in charge of the Merry Men and invites Robin to join them, where Robin eventually becomes the leader, and other times Robin already has his merry band of outlaws, and after the duel they invite John, who decides that their survival together is better than separate. Now, much the miller's son is just that. He's the son of a miller. More often than not, he is shown as the only one of the band who knew Robin prior to their outlaw days. Whether he is Robin's servants in the telling where Robin is of noble class, or Robin's friends in the version where they are yeomen, artisans, that grew up in the same village. Much has seemingly fallen out of favor, however, with the public, as he has been used in more than one story as simply an off-camera reference, and he's also had more than a couple names. Some of these have been Midge the Miller's son or Nick the Miller's son, and sometimes he's not even mentioned at all. He's been forgotten about, which is tragic when one thinks about it, as he was in the very first telling that we have. Will Scarlet, or Will Scaffolk, is the third and original Merry Men, and possibly the one that has been retconned the most to fit any particular writer's version of the story. He has been a surly middle-aged former soldier or mercenary to a complete blithering idiot incapable of ind independent thought that followed Robin around after the Crusades. He is often described as being average size, or average for an archer at any rate, with fiery red hair. Will is about half a dozen different surnames, however, not all of which I am going to go into on this episode, but I will say that some historians believe them to be different characters because of the vast number of different Wills. Anthony Munday took Will Scarlet and Will Scathlock as different characters, half-brothers nonetheless, though it is more likely, in my opinion, that these different last names are because of the different dialects of the English language that were going all through northern and southern England at this time. Now, in the story, A Jest of Robin Hood, Will is the one who captures the knight Richard at the Lee, whom Robin famously lends money to pay off his mortgage. Richard at the Lee is another character that is mentioned several times in various sagas of Robin Hood, though not one that I intend to go into detail with today.
One of my favorite characters is the wandering minstrel Alan Adale. Alan is a latecomer to the story, first being mentioned in the 17th century in a broadside ballad named Child Ballad 138. My, how they got more and more original as time went on. Often, Alan was portrayed as a wandering minstrel that is having trouble finding a patron and decides to join the group because he reckons he can live just as well as an outlaw as he can as a starving artist. He also recruits the band to help save his beloved from marrying an elderly knight. In The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, the band saves Will's beloved from marrying an elderly knight and performs a mock ceremony. Often, Alan and Will are described as good friends, which makes sense as Alan has taken a lot of Will's parts from earlier ballads. During the wedding ceremony from The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, there has been about six different retellings. The two most famous are where Robin performs a ceremony as he is not afraid to stand up to the clergy, and more recently, after Friar Tuck has been retconned into the story, Friar Tuck performs a ceremony as he is the only clergy member in the entire nation that will stand up to the archbishop. Now, Friar Tuck is another merry man that is a bit of a latecomer to the story. Tuck is worthy of his own supplemental episode, as his origins are skewed and his character is now and has always been among the most popular of the band. He is first mentioned in the Mayday plays that used to take place between the 15th and 17th centuries, and was originally believed to have been a companion with Maid Marian. He is almost always an overweight and jovial friar with the ability to defend himself more than admirably against men half his age. He's often depicted as being something of a father figure to the younger outlaws, or at the very least, someone capable of sage counsel to Robin in times of need. Tuck would not have been part of the band, however, when it was dated during the reigns of King Richard or John, as the friars had not yet made their presence in England. This is a point often used by historical purists as to why Edward should be the king during Robin Hood stories. Tuck has been everything from a very large man rivaling that even of Little John, if not in height, then in chest and arms, with a hot temper and great skill with a bow and staff, to the fat, ale-loving, bald monk that offers comic relief, the latter being my favorite depiction of him. Of Robin's allies, I have left out one, and that has been intentional. If Tuck deserves his own supplemental, then surely so does Robin's on-again and off-again love interest, Maid Marian. Maid Marian has changed her name almost as many times as Will Scaffolk. She has been and was originally Matilda, who married her shepherd husband, Robin Hood of Wakefield. She changed her name to Marian when they fled to Barnsdale Forest in exile together. Marian was introduced in the 16th century May Days and has been depicted as Robin's social match in every telling sense. She has been Miriam, Marion, Matilda, and about any other M name that one could think of. She has also been the Night Watchman in some more modern retellings of the story, and has competed with Robin for the affection of the peasants as they fought the sheriff in their own ways. This is usually in a case where Robin has forbidden her from entering the dangerous fight. Interestingly, even in the 16th century, Marion has always been something of a strong female protagonist. That term changed its meaning from century to century, but whatever that particular times means for the term, she falls into the category. In the later versions of the story, the 17th and 18th centuries, her and Robin were arranged to marry before he went off to fight in the Crusades with the king. Since then, she has found herself another male caller, though she does not always desire this caller. 
He is the only person to be as infamous an antagonist as the Sheriff of Nottingham. That is Guy of Gisborne. Guy of Gisborne is first mentioned in Robin Hood and Guy of Gisborne, where he is a hired killer brought in to kill Robin Hood, but he is in fact the one who meets his end in that battle. Guy's exact date of introduction to the story is unknown, as the publication of Robin Hood and the Guy of Gisborne is from the late 16th century. But there is also a play that includes a Sir Guy that was from about 100 years before that, and it is possible that he was introduced even sooner. Often, he is a French mercenary brought in to kill or quell the outlaws of the sheriff. Sometimes, he is a landless knight or the younger son of a noble family that has found a patron in the sheriff. Guy is often described as being a tall and lithe knight with a great skill in arms. In versions of the story Robin is a yeoman, he is there to show the English bowman superiority over the French man-at-arms. In versions where Robin is an earl or some other lord, Guy is meant to be a rival for either his lands or Marion's affections. There are scores of other characters that have appeared in the earliest ballads or been introduced at some point throughout the centuries that I have chosen to leave out. It's not because I felt them unimportant, but because I lacked the time to do this. Now, I could go into excruciating detail and hijack the show from David for about six episodes and go over every single point from every single ballad and poem and all of the nuances and all of the characters, but I don't think anybody but myself would enjoy that, so I won't. Now, I have read more than five different historical fiction series about the Archer with a vendetta, and all of them have had things that I've liked and things that I would have changed. At the end of this episode, I will give a list of books to consider reading if any of the listeners are still left. Robin, as I stated earlier, has begun as a yeoman and was depicted mainly to show that the lower classes could and would outsmart the upper classes. Well, you know, with their understanding of the lay of the land, their skill in hunting, fishing, and basically the ability to survive, he was meant to be a jab at the lords who ruled over lands and collected rents that they likely never even saw. He hunted the king's deer with impunity, a crime that some scholars believed is proof of his heritage from either Adam Bell or simply an oral tradition dating back to the Normans, saying that the Anglo-Saxons were no longer permitted to hunt the deer of the king that they had already been hunting for generations. He existed to rob clergy who were growing fat and drunk off of the hard-earned food and ale of the working man, and he would terrorize any landlord that was being unfair to their hard-working tenants. While Richard at the Lee needed a loan, Robert gave it to him because he empathized, and much the miller's son offered him a horse because a man of his station deserved to be on horseback. When they first met the friar, he had sworn to take a vow of poverty, and he abided by it. Though he loved the drink, and he loved his food, and he would not apologize for this, but these were things that endeared the character to the public, and to Robin and his band of outlaws, as they represented the best of their classes. When Robin went to war with the sheriff, he was usually taxing an already broken people after they had just been sheared to the skin for food, money, and able bodies to fight in the king's wars. And yet, here came a perfectly wealthy, able-bodied man with a small band of mercenaries demanding more of everything from them. Is it any wonder that a man who would not stand by and watch this injustice occur became a legend that lasted for generations? He may have been a wolf's head to the king and to the nobles, but to the working class, he was their beacon of hope and of justice. His most famous characteristic has been to steal from the rich and give to the poor, in a type of pseudo-communism, 
Well, I hate to break it to you, but this was an invention of the 20th century, starting with Errol Flynn. Now, can you honestly imagine a version, though, where that doesn't happen? Neither can I. However, the only telling of him doing anything even remotely related to this in historical ballads is when he did lend Richard at the Lee the money for his mortgage, because at the end of the story he told him not to worry about paying him back. In truth, however, the early tellings have him besting the gentry and the nobility. That was repayment enough to the working classes, as they would have gladly given up a year's rent just to see their lord fall face first into a pile of horse dung. Robin was later elevated to the nobility, and in some ways I believe that is the most tragic thing about the story. Later, they decided to take away his noble class as being either disinherited or outlawed for siding with the wrong side in the Civil War or speaking out against Prince John. And while that does offer it a certain level of credence, I still like my Robin Hood a yeoman. I do hope that you've enjoyed this episode, and I hope that you learned something interesting that you didn't know before. If you are interested in learning more about Robin Hood, I would point you in the directions of Foundations by Peter Aykroyd, Robin Hood, a mythic biography by Stephen Thomas Knight, or The Outlaws of Medieval England by Maurice King. If you're like me, and you prefer your Robin Hood to be a heroic or an anti-heroic person of historical fiction, I would send you in the direction of the Wolfhead series by Stephen A. McKay, or to Angus Donald and his well-written historical fiction series. McKay puts his during the reign of Edward II, and does a great job with historical research while paying homage to the characters listed above, while Donald does his through the eyes of the troubadour Alan Adale, and he keeps it through the legend of King Richard I. All are great in their own way, and if you have not yet seen the film of Kevin Costner's The Prince of Thieves from 1992, I would strongly recommend it. He may have an American accent the whole time, but it is still, in my opinion, the best version of Robin Hood. If you would like to hear more of the sultry tones that you're hearing right now, you can find me on iTunes at The Glenn and Dean Show. We're also available at glennandean.com. My Twitter handle is at glennlongwell89, and I am also the author of the fantasy ebook entitled The Dead Letters by D.G. Longwell. It is available for download on Amazon for your Kindle app. I would urge you to download it as it is a book with heavy British and Roman history undertones and a lot of mythology and action. Also, because the second book of the three-part series will be out this summer, and my son, who was very recently born, is hungry, as are my fiancé and I. So the more that you buy, the less likely it is that we will starve. So please download it for our well-being, and I will be forever in your debt. If you would like to hear David on the Glenn and Dean Show, check out the episode entitled The History of England. Thank you again for your time, and don't forget to download The Dead Letters by D.G. Longwell. Good night.